we sell owl pellets. I used to find pellets when I was a kid and you're only interested in the skulls. Hi, I'm Holly and welcome to my podcast, Through the Trees, where I talk to my guests about a whole range of nature-based subjects. Today, I'm talking to Susan Jones from the Suffolk Owl Sanctuary about why ringing birds is important, what we can all do in our gardens to help wildlife, and the best place for owl boxes. I hope you enjoyed this episode and thanks for tuning in. Hi Susan, thank you so much for joining me today. And before we begin the questions on what we're going to be talking about, I always ask everyone what their favourite tree is and if they have one and why. Yeah, I do. I guess it's changed over the years. Um, I used to love kind of hazel trees from growing in, they were in the garden and I used to go and pick the nuts before the squirrels got them. But more recently I've fallen in love with silver birches. Just they're so colorful all year round you know in the spring they get the leaves and they're that gorgeous bright lime green color and then that stays through to the summer and then the autumn they turn that gorgeous golden color and even in the winter they're still magical with the with the bark so yeah i definitely say silver birches (laughs) that's amazing i love silver birches and funnily enough another podcast episode that I've recorded has said exactly the same thing they were going to say hazel and then they said silver birch so I think the silver birch two are are running ahead in the league table here (laughs) not that we're running league tables no no definitely not each tree is equal exactly definitely (laughs) so you work for the Suffolk Owl Sanctuary Mm -hmm. and you're a volunteer bird ringer and nest recorder for the British Trust for Ornithology what sparked your interest and love for birds um <laughs> I've, I've i've loved animals and wildlife and nature since well since i was born and i guess for me i spent a lot of time with my grandparents sitting in their garden watching the birds visiting the feeders and going for walks in the hills and down to the beach and watching the birds there so i guess i've always been interested in birds but birds have kind of become the focus for me probably in the last 10 years or so I've kind of I've always loved them but they've never I've kind of dabbled in lots of other things as well but then yeah since I started bird ringing birds have kind of become my main focus um which is which is fun which is interesting I always get lots of random questions from people going what's this bird in the garden and they send me a picture and it's some ident- unidentifiable brown blob and you go, <laughs> it could be anything probably a robin or a dunnock or a sparrow <laughs> i don't know <laughs> oh that's well i think that's that's so important for like younger people to have that connection like you did with your grandparents because it is true that it does um it can inspire you for your future life mm-hmm. and sitting behind you the listeners won't be able to see but you do have a beautiful owl um statue <laughs> which i think is absolutely beautiful so you do um, a lot of volunteer work and bird ringing um, is something that not everyone might know what it is and why people do it. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, in the UK, we call it bird ringing. Um, in other countries, a lot of people call it bird banding. Um, and basically it involves catching a wild bird and giving it a unique uh, ring on its leg usually. And these rings are kind of different sizes depending on the size of the bird so you wouldn't put lots of people might have seen swans with rings on their legs if they've been down by the river mm-hmm. you wouldn't put a swan ring on a robin yeah um, okay. you know a robin could fly through a swan ring um <laughs> so the ring sizes are different depending on the birds um and each ring has a unique number um 
which is linked to a national um, database. So the British Trust for Ornithology coordinate the ringing scheme in Britain and Ireland, but each country will have its own scheme. Some countries share schemes. So yeah. quite a few countries in Africa will use the British scheme because it's led by British ringers. Um, and the whole point of it is to find out more about birds. So, you know, when we catch the birds, we find out what species they are. If we can, we can age them. So we know if they're a young bird or an adult, we can see if they're breeding. We can sometimes determine if they're migrants or not. So mm. foreign, some foreign birds are very distinctly different to our resident birds. So we can tell that by taking different biometrics. Yeah. And the best bit about it for me is, is to find out where the birds go. So if you ring a bird nine times out of 10, you'll never see it again you'll never hear from it again it will just carry on living its life and then eventually hopefully many years down the line it will die somewhere and it'll never be found but just sometimes you get a report you get an email saying somebody's found your bird and you get to see that um you know it's turned up sometimes it's turned up in your neighbor's garden sometimes it's turned up a few miles away um i've had one recently of a a pied flycatcher which i monitored in north wales a chick that i ringed in the nest um has actually been caught last summer breeding in cumbria amazing it's kind of decided it doesn't like north wales and it's going to go and breed in cumbria um which is <laughs> lovely um so that's always quite nice and sometimes we get birds with foreign rings on as well so you know you might catch a bird with a with a a Dutch ring or a Scandinavian ring and then you can go oh I wonder where this came from and mm. again you ping an email across to them and depends on the scheme and the country you usually get a reply back saying oh yeah this is where it was found amazing yeah it's definitely worthwhile keeping a lookout for ringed birds and especially like with the climate changing so maybe the birds might have different patterns um how are our wild birds the native species doing in this country at the moment so i guess the best place to direct you to would be the bto's state of british wild birds report which was published end of last year start of this year and that's quite a thorough report based on decades worth of data collection from ringers and nest recorders and just general surveyors going out and reporting on birds generally speaking some are doing okay some are not doing okay mm -hmm. we all know that waders are doing really badly at the moment and why is that if if we knew the answers um, there's various things there could be um agricultural intensification okay um, okay so curlews yeah. being a good example they breed in kind of upland farmland areas and these areas are being intensively farmed now so they've lost that area and they're also often accidentally the nests are disturbed and damaged by the farmers who are just trying to do their jobs but then on the flip side to that we have you know some birds like black caps which some people might be lucky enough to have in their gardens 20 30 years ago black caps all went to spain and france for the winter now they stay here for the winter so you know climate change is definitely having an impact some birds are staying here um and unable to survive our winters because they're not as cold as they used to be but then that brings lots of other yeah. things we have more extreme weather conditions which obviously hampers breeding attempts and survival rates and things like that so 
Yeah, there's lots of things going on, but generally speaking, some are doing okay, some are not doing okay, and there are way too many <laughs> like theories and reasons behind that to discuss it in, in just a very short <laughs> no of course of course but we can all do our bit coming into spring now we can all put our bird feeders out refresh the bedding in our bird boxes what would you say are some other tips that people can do just to help the birds that say they see in their garden the robins the blue tits i would definitely say don't be too tidy leave as much of your garden wild as you can we recently moved and our, the garden was definitely a bit of a jungle and we pains me to say but we did actually hack a load of stuff back but we've left a little corner and that is the bit where we have blackbirds robins blue tits that's where they're all hiding out and hopefully everything will grow back eventually and they'll start using the rest of the garden but definitely like keep a wild space and if you've got space put a pond in yeah. Every paper will tell you ponds attract wildlife. You'll get insects coming in and then you'll get some amphibians coming in, hopefully, and the insects will attract the birds and you'll get other insects coming in to drink or to feed off those insects. And, and I'd say build a pond and keep it wild. That sounds perfect. I will make sure I go out and do that. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't have to be a big one either. Your pond can, like, literally out the back here, we've just got an old washing up bowl that we've just dug oh, great. and put it in. So tiny little pond um is perfect just make sure you've got something to let hedgehogs out if they fall in <laughs> oh yeah that's a good idea yeah you don't want to, even if you do use a bucket you don't want those steep sides no pop some sticks in or rocks or um yeah like a little plank of wood or something so they can climb out that's a good idea so we do have so many native species which are flourishing at the moment and especially with owls so we know that we've got barn owls and tawny owls and you working at the Suffolk Owl Sanctuary you are the person to talk to about owls so what sort of other species are native to this country so we have four native owl species in this country we have the barn owl which is actually the most widespread of all the different types of owls around the world slight variations so the american barn owls are a bit bigger and the european barn owls are not as white as ours ours are definitely the kind of the purest white barn owls you can find in the world yeah okay and we have the tawny owls which are again very widespread across europe and asia we have the short-eared owls which do breed here but they're actually migratory and nomadic so we get a massive influx in the autumn and winter especially if you live on the east coast you'll quite often see them flying in off, off the sea and then we also have long-eared owls which we don't really know much about they like living in okay. kind of dense forests and are very good at hiding and are probably the only truly nocturnal owl like you won't see them in the daytime at all so they're really really secretive and we don't know much about them okay so those are the four natives and then lots of people think little owls are native because they're quite common actually they've only been here about 150 years the victorians wanted something small cute and active in the daytime so they brought them over from europe the victorians have a lot to live up for for different species that they've brought over yeah yeah um although yeah interestingly lots of things you know like gray squirrels were introduced for kind of the same reasons and you know they've had a massive impact on red squirrels and other wildlife but little owls actually don't appear to have any kind of negative effect on okay. on other wildlife which is quite nice in a way because you know they are a very engaging species for people to get involved with 
And then we also have Eurasian eagle owls, which there is a big debate as to whether they are from here historically or not. But yeah, there are a few of them in the UK at the moment that are attempting to breed, but they're almost certainly escaped birds from falconry collections. And then every year we actually have a few snowy owls turn up, Mm. not around here, although there was one in Norfolk a couple of years ago, but usually they stay up in the highlands, but they haven't actually bred here since the 90s. So (laughs) yeah, not quite a native species, but... (laughs) Yeah, but but owls, no matter what area they're from or are living in, they're really important to that ecosystem. Yeah, so owls are... I, I guess you know most people will be familiar with apex predators. There's not many animals in the UK that will actively hunt owls. Some owls might get taken out by goshawks or you know some of the larger eagles and things like that up in Scotland. But generally speaking, nothing's going to touch an owl <laughs> with good reason. Um, but that means that it's really important because they basically control everything underneath them in the food chain. So if the mouse population explodes on a farm, if you've got owls there, then they'll keep that population down, which is why barn owls are widely considered one of the farmer's best friends, because they help to control the rodent population. But on the flip side to that, if the farmer decides to go and put some poison down or something or do something else to control the rodents, the barn owls aren't going to have anything to eat. So the population goes down. So it kind of swings in roundabouts, but they are definitely one of those species that are fairly easy to kind of look for, mm. look for signs of them, and therefore they're quite easy to kind of monitor what's going on underneath them in terms of the ecosystem. Mm. Brilliant, because they've got, I guess, their pellets um, regurgitated up. And so you can kind of have a little look and see what they're eating in them. I remember doing that as a child. We had this old (laughs) kind of folly down the end. And if you went up into the top there, you'd always see these pellets, which my brother and I just used to love looking through. Yeah, (laughs) I'm exactly the same. I I used to, yeah, find pellets when I was a kid and kind of rifle through them and find you're only interested in the skulls yeah yeah. all the other everything else just gets thrown away you're only interested in the skulls but yeah it's interesting you mentioned the pellets because we actually at Suffolk Owl Sanctuary we we sell owl pellets and we had a post somebody ordered some for their kids and posted on a group on Facebook and said how wonderful it was and we've actually sold out amazing (laughs) (laughs) we've had so many orders come in that we're actually we're, we're paying back up on on kind of all the orders that we've had in um and it's kind of exploded so yeah if anybody knows of anywhere where we can find owl pellets <laughs> that's amazing that's such a good idea i didn't even think about that because especially now with children being taught from home a yeah. lot what a great activity for the parents to order online and um and it's all hands-on as well that's what i think learning should be yeah. it should be hands-on and directly touching the pellets, the, the whatever it is, whether it's even just like a tree, hugging a tree, directly touching it. I think it's just so important. Oh, I'm yeah. so happy that you guys do that. <laughs> we've done them for years and we've kind of muddled through with orders and things like that. But well, since the lockdown, really, um, orders have increased massively. And since January, we've, we've sold out. So we're just waiting more for more to arrive now. Amazing. That's really, really good. The work that you do at the Suffolk Owl Sanctuary, you do a lot of helping younger children. Um, you do talks at different 
well maybe not schools now we do virtual sessions so uh, yeah we're doing a lot of schools virtually and things like that oh brilliant well that's amazing how are you finding that the Suffolk Owl Sanctuary is doing during lockdown what sort of sessions are you able to provide now that people can't exactly come to you so yeah we we've obviously been closed for most of the last 12 months we had a brief period where we could open towards the end of last summer which was brilliant to have people visiting us again but yeah thing, things have been quite difficult like i'm pretty much the only member of staff who's able to actually reach out and connect with visitors and public and followers um through doing the virtual sessions that we're doing for schools and for groups and i also run the social media for the for the sanctuary as well so i'm able to reach out that way but yeah it's it's really tough for everybody you know we are a charity we rely on um visitors coming in to see the birds that we have in our collection to learn about them through our talks and displays and i think the falconers are really kind of feeling that strain of being like when we reopen are we going to remember what we need to say um because they've had you know not quite 12 months from basically turning up for work in in their civvies and yeah. i think as as a team we're really good at kind of communicating and finding out what people need so oh that's amazing because there's a lot of work that you know the birds still need to be fed they still need to be looked after and you've got a yeah. on-site hospital and and so you're getting injured birds uh what sort of main injuries are you finding yeah so the hospital's been open throughout the lockdowns and actually we found that in the last 12 months we've actually found we've almost had more birds coming in than normal i guess because people are spending more time walking and and spending more time locally and noticing things more yeah um most of the injuries we have in are either young birds that are just inexperienced and have maybe been hit by bad weather and not being able to find enough food we do get quite a lot of road casualties as well so we often get birds brought in that have been found on the side of the road injuries wise again it depends some of them if they're just inexperienced they're just really thin maybe dehydrated um, and they just need a bit of time and some good food yeah. to kind of recover. Occasionally we get some in that have got, you know, broken wings or broken hips and things like that. And it's always a tough call as to whether we, we always do the best for the bird and we always have to think long-term. So if we think the bird will, will recover with treatment, then we'll obviously we'll keep it in and they can stay with us for as long as is necessary. But we do have to think long-term and if the birds are, injured beyond repair yeah then we do have specialist vets that we work with who um do have have that job of having to put them to sleep if, if that's the kindest thing for them exactly yeah like you say you have to do the best thing for the animal i've always been growing up around horses and dogs and you just know or the vet knows when the time is right and that is the kindest thing to do yeah um have you found that litter does have an impact on these birds too not necessarily with the birds that we've been getting in um that's good. i think that's partly because obviously um birds of prey and raptors aren't necessarily going to be kind of rooting around in rubbish so to speak yeah obviously yeah. there are if, if you look on the internet there will be pictures of um birds, birds getting caught up in of things course, yeah. um but i don't know that we've had many cases are in ourselves well that's positive <laughs> yeah um, what, one of the things that we've had a few cases of recently is actually um, fencing. So barbed wire fencing that's not tight 
birds can fly into it and get caught. So we have had a few cases of that, but that's not necessarily littering. But we've not had any cases of anything obvious coming in with things like that. Good. That's really refreshing to hear. <laughs> it's not all doom and gloom. <laughs> no, exactly. And I'm I'm a person who likes to try and stay positive as much as possible. And I was thinking actually because we've got a couple of old, got a barn here and a couple of old oak trees, and I was wondering whether putting up a barn owl box would be a good idea. Um, what sort of tips do you have for anybody who's maybe thinking about? buying a box or making a box that's specific for the different birds that they've got uh, is there a certain place that it should be should not be yeah I, I guess the first thing I should do is give a big plug to our website um, because you can actually find lots of advice about building boxes and where to site them and things on our website but actually yeah it depends on what species you're hoping to attract okay tawny owls obviously like woodland um Barn owls prefer kind of open farmland, but will happily go into a barn or an old building, um, providing it has kind of 24 hour, 365 days a year access. Yep. I've heard of people who have put barn owl boxes up in a stable block and then come the winter time, they shut the doors and they wonder why the barn owls don't come back <laughs> because you shut the door. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so it really depends on the species. And I guess the, the best thing to do would be if you know you have owls in the area, chances are it would be a good thing to put up, up a box. They might not use it. We usually say leave leave a box up for a few years. And then if after three or four years mm -hmm. they haven't shown any interest in it, move the box. Okay. Um, sometimes it could be as simple as they just really don't like that tree. <laughs> Some I've, I've heard of people who have moved a box literally... 50 yards up the field and put it in the next tree in the hedge and that year they've had owls in it oh wow okay 50 yards down the field and not, not been completely ignored for a few years that's so funny i'm sure there's a reason as well there's probably some yeah. some little thing that we don't know that that the bird is just like nope and we'll never know <laughs> no exactly you know it, it yeah there could be any sort of reason the one thing we would always say is make sure that it's not in the prevailing wind because they really don't like a draft okay. and try try and keep it out of direct sun as well would be the two main things if it is outdoors brilliant okay right well i've got my my top tips now so i'll let you know how I get on. <laughs> Have you got a book that you've read and you think that would be really interesting for others who want to find out more, whether it's about owls or garden birds or um, any sort of bird species, really? There are so many books out there on this topic. Um, and I, yeah, like if I turned my camera around right now, you would just see shelves and shelves of books on various different <laughs> topics. I'd probably say if, if people wanted to learn more specifically about barn owls in particular um there's a really good book i've actually got it here it's the barn owl by colin shower Brilliant. and that's that's a really good book it, it's a little bit dated i think it came out in the 80s possibly but it's really good for people wanting to learn more about barn owls and things haven't changed that much um about you know where they live and what they like brilliant i think i might i might um might get that and my mum would definitely enjoy that <laughs> Oh, that's been amazing. How can people find you or the Suffolk Owl Sanctuary on social media? Yeah, so the Suffolk Owl Sanctuary is either Suffolk Owls or Suffolk Owl Sanctuary on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Um, and we do have a YouTube channel as well where we post 
usually it's release videos so people like to see the birds that we have in when they're released and they fly off so we post kind of release videos onto youtube as well and we do have a website which is www.owl-help.org.uk and if people want to find me directly i'm on twitter at welsh lassie brilliant thank you so much for talking to me i really really enjoyed that and i've learned a lot Brilliant. <laughs> thank you very much for uh, yeah having a chat you're very welcome <laughs> At the end of every episode, I share a quote which I feel sums up everything we have been talking about. And my quote today is from the wonderful primatologist, Jane Goodall. You cannot get through a single day without having an impact on the world around you. What you do makes a difference, and you have to decide what kind of difference you want to make.